Our text for today would be Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 20. Ephesians 5.20 But before I read that text, I'd like to read something from John 17, when Jesus was praying. He said, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in Ephesians 5, verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we began looking at the issue of Christian community, specifically the practices that build and sustain a Christian community. We began by looking at the practice of gratitude. As I mentioned last week, I see practices as, a, as truly practical theology. But the word theology seems to worry people. Um, it seems, I don't know, too abstract or too theoretical. Let me relate a story to you, a, a passage from a, a book I've been reading, and see if I can make a case that theology is in fact important. A recent book that's come out is entitled Dementia, Living in the Memories of God. It's written by John Swinton. He tells a story at the beginning of the book how that in 2009 he was asked to participate in a a BBC radio program with two others. The topic was the theological issues regarding dementia. It's a three-way conversation. Swinton, who teaches pastoral care and practical theology, and two psychiatrists. One was Muslim, the other Hindu. And they were told by the person doing the moderating that here's the final question, I'll tell you the final question now so you can think about it as the program develops. And that is, if you end up with dementia, how would you like to be treated? Swinton said he was distracted by that question, he wished it had been put off to the end. And finally at the end he said something like, if I do get dementia, I hope I will be loved and cared for just for who I am, even if who I am is difficult for me and others. On the way home, however, as he was riding home, he became troubled by his answer. He was thinking through it, in part because of two issues. The first is, who am I? He hoped that he would be loved for who he was, but who am I? And he recalled one of Diedrich Bonhoeffer's prison uh, poems entitled, Who Am I? Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others, and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Who am I? They mock me these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. In our age, in which people both try to discover who they are and try to reinvent themselves, the question, who am I, I think, reflects much of contemporary thinking. But the question is much more involved than we might think. Let me ask you, are you the same person you were at age 5 or 10 or 14 or 50? You may bear some resemblance to the previous self, but don't necessarily look the same. You don't have the same priorities, desires, or physical capacities. You don't view the world in the same way as you did in the past. 
then the question is, who are you when you develop dementia? The second issue that came up in his mind is, what is love? Some might try to love the me with dementia, as Swinton puts it, by offering comfort, solace, friendship in my times of struggle. Others might see my dementia as a fate worse than death and assume that death would be a blessed release. In the name of love and compassion, dementia might seem to be a good reason for justifying euthanasia. Swinton writes, My loved ones might abandon me because they think I am no longer there, that I am already dead. Another writer who's written quite a bit about medical ethics, Stanley Hawass, has noted that compassion has become dangerous in our age for vulnerable people. He wrote an essay entitled Killing Compassion. He notes that compassion in our age has become a cardinal virtue. At its core, compassion is perceived as a way of ridding the world of unnecessary suffering. But without the presence of Christian virtue, and I would say theology, it can quickly evolve into a dangerous and destructive practice. In the name of compassion, we might feel quite comfortable comfortable aborting babies or ending the lives of people with dementia. So in dealing with the issue, how do I want to be treated if in fact I do develop dementia, one must in fact, first of all, have a theology of what it means to be human and a theology of what love is and what it involves. This is also true for what we'll be looking at the next few weeks, the practices that serve to build and sustain Christian community. Many Christian practices today carry with them a kind of sentimental baggage. One writer put it this way, A sentimental capitulation has come to characterize a dying Christianity. Believing that we have nothing distinctive to offer our modern or postmodern democratic capitalistic world, the church simply hangs on to Christian language but refuses to live out a genuine alternative. Sentimental practices are, if you wish, practices without theology. There is to be both a theology, a theory, if you wish, as well as practice. These things are not to be separate or separated. They, in fact, are to go hand in hand. We should not have practice-free theory. It's all in our heads. But neither are we to have theory-neutral practice. And I would argue that this is the nature of sentimentality, that people simply do things, but they don't really have any thinking behind it. They have language, like love and compassion, but what is the thinking behind it? What is the theology behind it? There are a number of problems that emerge when we talk about practical theology or the theory and practice of Christian faith and community. First of all, practice can be wrongly seen as only activity. And theology can be seen wrongly as the only source of knowledge. A sort of body-soul dichotomy. We say practice and theology. We sort of keep them separate. In reality, it is oftentimes in the doing of things that we come to learn. So we can't say, okay, theology... That's where you learn the stuff, and practice, that's where you do the stuff. 
But it is, in fact, in the doing oftentimes that we come to learn. And so we should not keep these things separate. This is a theme we find in the early church fathers, that practice is a way of knowing. One of the early church fathers criticized an opponent of his for ignoring Christian practices, for thinking that the Christian faith consisted only in teachings. It's not practice, it's just what you know, your teachings. And in fact, these things cannot or should not be separated. Another issue that emerges is that practice can be seen wrongly as only an individual activity. We were looking at the practices that build and sustain community. But we should not imagine that they are only practices that we do as individuals. To learn a practice, we must learn it from others. We must learn a tradition that has been sustained by many people over a long period of time. In any given practice, we are participating in something that is much larger than the individual, much larger than ourselves. This is particularly true if we see something as corporate rather than as individual. Now the question is, well, does this mean I can only do these practices when there are a bunch of other Christians around, since it's supposed to be a corporate practice? And the answer is no. Take, for example, prayer, the practice of prayer. One can, and I would argue should, practice prayer in solitude when one is alone. But at the same time, one who prays while alone, is in fact participating in an activity that is sustained by a long tradition and by a community of believers. One more thing. Practice can wrongly be seen as something done for the self. Too often we find ourselves wondering, okay, what's in it for me? Will I become a better Christian if I do these things, for example? When we think that way, we have not truly entered into the kind of life that is embodied in the practices we are looking at. The true purpose of Christian practices, broadly stated, is communion with the triune God and the communion of the saints. It isn't about me and what I can get out of it. It is because, in fact, I belong to something much larger than myself. Of course, our practices will be flawed. They will be halting. They will sometimes be wrong and unfaithful. But God's grace makes possible our participation in the communion with the triune God and the communion of the saints. Last Sunday we saw that grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. That gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. If the essence of God is grace, then the essence of human beings as God's people should be gratitude. When we more fully understand the grace that we have been given, I think we are more likely and more able to turn in gratitude to God and in generosity toward others. As one writer put it, gratitude becomes our home in the presence of God. I mentioned this last week that Henry Nouwen wrote, our gratitude is an intimate participation in the divine life itself that reaches out far beyond our own self to God, to all of creation, to the people who gave us life, love, and care. And where do we begin this practice of gratitude? In public worship, what we are doing right now, what we have been doing. 
What we find in the Old Testament oftentimes is their worship consisted of remembering God's goodness and God's acts on behalf of the community, of those who had come before them. When we gather together, we remember what Jesus has done for us, his gift in bringing us salvation, and we are brought together into the heart of worship. Christine Pohl has written about this, and she writes, Gratitude involves knowing that we are held secure by a loving God, and that the God we worship is trustworthy, despite the nearly unbearable sorrow we might encounter along the way. Again, I closed with this last week, but we should recognize that in the place and time where we live, it is oftentimes countercultural to take the posture of a grateful recipient. We find it difficult to be grateful because we live in an age of entitlement where everyone thinks that they are owed certain things. Because our culture says that self-fulfillment is, in fact, tied to individual achievement. And so if I need somebody else's help, then I really haven't done it on my own. And that oftentimes our lives are so filled with busyness that gratitude is pushed aside. All of what we looked at last week dealt with gratitude toward God. I want to continue today looking at gratitude, but include also gratitude toward one another. In dealing with the gratitude that we are to show toward God, we looked at the connection between grace and gratitude, showing that even in Latin and Greek, the words are related, grace and gratitude. In dealing with gratitude toward one another, the place to begin could be Gift and gratitude. What makes something a gift? Well, it is unearned. Repayment is not expected. It has some kind of value, and it is given for the benefit of the recipient. The response of gratitude is not repayment for what one has received, paying it back, as it were. Yet we generally expect that the recipient of a gift is to respond with gratitude. But wait a minute, if, if gratitude is expected, doesn't that make it an obligation and therefore almost sort of forced or coerced rather than being something that sort of flows naturally? As the giver, one should not emphasize reciprocity in gift giving. I've given you this as though we're teaching young children, now what do you say? Um, we do not give in order that something would be given back to us. We hear this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Jesus says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We are not to keep track of the gifts that we give. Therefore, reciprocity is not something that we should seek. On the other hand, what if we are the recipient of a gift? We may dislike the feeling of being indebted to any particular person or group. But gratitude is a wonderful reminder that we are not alone, that in fact we are dependent upon others, 
and that some gifts can never be repaid in kind. The sense of community as God's people is built and sustained and strengthened when we have this giving and receiving. To return to the matter of the one who is giving, we must be careful not to let the gratitude of others motivate our giving. And yet the offering of thanks is an expression of respect for a relationship. Um, and I think it is appropriate. Uh, I must confess, oftentimes, I, if in fact I have given something to someone and then they want to thank me, I, I feel somewhat uncomfortable. I look at don't, don't mention it. But in fact, it is appropriate. And it speaks of a bond, of a relationship within the community of faith that is being built. There may come a time in people's lives when they feel that their efforts or their gifts are taken for granted. What are you to do? Christine Pohl writes, to love and persevere in situations where the people we serve are unresponsive or ungrateful requires that we understand our work is offered first to God. Another writer put it this way, God's affirmation of our belovedness needs to be sufficient. We do it as unto the Lord. Well, some have taken this, I think, a bit far and suggest that gratitude is to be given to God alone. He is the one who enables another person to give something to another one. So that if, in fact, I were to give something to someone, they would say, well, I'm not going to thank you. I'm going to thank God because God enabled you to give it to me. And so thanks should ultimately go to God. When writing about prayer, which... an author makes, I think, a connection that is, well, valuable for us. We are to invoke God alone in every need. And yet this does not exclude our requesting the help of others. For it is God who has conferred on them their ability to help and has appointed them ministers of his beneficence. Whatever benefit we receive from others, we should regard as coming from God who alone bestows every benefit through their ministry. But should we not be grateful to other people when they perform some service for us? Of course we should, precisely because God honors them by channeling through their hands the good things that flow to us from the inexhaustible fountain of his generosity. In this way, he puts us in their debt, and he wants us to acknowledge it. Anyone, therefore, who does not show gratitude to other people betrays ingratitude to God as well. We should, in fact, thank someone to say, God has used you, God has honored you as a means to help me, and I want to thank you, and I want to thank God as well. What about people say, well, we shouldn't worry about who who gets the credit. Don't worry about who gets the credit. It all goes to God anyway. On a personal level, this may work as a form of spiritual discipline. But I think, on the other hand, it fails to recognize how things are done from God through the individual to someone else. It fails to recognize that the gifts that one has come from God. See, the church, the community of faith, is made up of different individuals with different gifts. They are not to be taken for granted. They are to be responded to with gratitude. Let's face it, some people are better at certain things than others. 
This reflects the giftedness they had been given by God. We're not to take their efforts for granted. For some people, certain things come easily and they're able to help others perhaps more easily than someone else. We shouldn't say, well, it comes easy to them and so that's God's gift to them and so that's wonderful and not respond with gratitude. We are not to take people or their efforts for granted. I think it might be helpful for us to consider what weakens our gratitude and what strengthens our gratitude. First of all, what weakens it? Or perhaps it might be better to put what deforms our gratitude. David Hume claimed that of all crimes that human creatures are capable of, are capable, the most horrid and unnatural is ingratitude. I'm not quite sure what he means by unnatural because I think ingratitude seems to come to us pretty naturally. It is the spurning of God's goodness. God's goodness as reflected in creation and as in, in individuals. Ingratitude basically says, it's nothing. Whatever form it takes, ingratitude can have a devastating impact on individuals, on families, on congregations and communities. What is it that deforms our gratitude, that produces ingratitude? I'll suggest several things. The first is envy. Envy, by definition, requires another person. If you were living on an island by yourself, I guess in your head you could be envious, but in fact there's no one else to be envious of. As soon as somebody else comes ashore and there are two of you, then there is a basis for comparison, and then envy suddenly rears its ugly head. Based on comparison, one might become envious, seeing that somebody else has what they want or what they think they deserve. I don't know if you remember when we looked at the seven deadly sins, when it came to envy, I mentioned the definition of happiness from the Devil's Dictionary, which is, in fact, a book of cynical wit. It says that happiness is an agreeable sensation arising from contemplating the misery of another. In reality, this is a definition of envy. The Germans have a word for it, schadenfreude. The pleasure we take in the misery of others. David Nagel put it this way. On the one hand, envious people feel blessed when others mourn. And on the other, they mourn when others are blessed. Interestingly enough, envy is not simply toward others. It isn't simply us and other people. It also has very much a connection in the way we look at God. Envy ultimately resents God as the giver of good gifts to somebody else. And why didn't I get that gift? It resents the good gifts that he gives, the ones who get those gifts. In fact, we may be unhappy when others are given something we are not, either recognizing or not that what they have comes from God. When we live in community, comparisons are natural. I think in many ways we can't help it. And when we compare ourselves to others, we may find ourselves, at least in our thinking, coming out on the short end. This leads to envy. We begin to envy those who have what we think is better than ours, who have more than us. And what's that all about? 
While love may be central to Christian life and community, envy somehow manages to creep into our lives and community if we are not on our guard. One of the dangerous things about envy is that we generally do not speak it publicly. We don't say it out loud. We don't say to someone, oh, I envy you. We may, but I, I think oftentimes when we do that, it's probably not envy in the way that we're looking at. On the other hand, if deep down we envy someone, we're not going to say that. But we will act as though we love them, and so there's a hypocrisy that begins to creep in. Uh, Basil of Caesarea in the 4th century observed, The misery and torment of envy is the pain that arises from another's good fortune. And because of this, the envious man is never without pain, never without grief of mind. And envy deforms gratitude. Where in fact you should have gratitude that you're offering, somehow it begins to get misshapen and twisted. At the core of envy is the absence of gratitude for the gifts we have been given. So there is envy. Another thing that deforms our gratitude is grumbling. Again, it is directed either at God or at others. It's illustrated time and time again in the life of Israel. Having been miraculously delivered from over four centuries of slavery by the strong hand of God, they begin to grumble against God and Moses. In Exodus 16, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. And then in Numbers 11, the rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Well, in the first place, they were unhappy because there was no manna. And then they got manna and they were unhappy because they didn't have garlic. Just this grumbling against God and against his servant Moses. Their lack of gratitude not only caused them to grumble, but to forget how things had been. Really? Really? You want to go back to Egypt and be slaves again? Seriously? In their ingratitude, their perception of the past had become warped. Ingratitude blinds us to what we have been given. And soon almost everything seems unsatisfactory. It is said that grumbling is highly contagious in communities and complaining and dissatisfaction can become a way of life. Oftentimes because it involves overgeneralization. It's not specific things. It's just sort of a general, eh, not happy with the way that things are. I find it interesting that the rule of Benedict, which was written over 1,500 years ago, uh, set set the standards for life in the monasteries under the Benedictine uh, rule. Frequently, the rule of Benedict addresses the matter of grumbling. It saw grumbling as a major threat to communal life and goodness. And it warned time and time again against those who grumbled. However, 
The rule of Benedict did not stop there. It was attentive to circumstances that could in fact lead to grumbling. So, for example, there are instructions that the people who work in the kitchen, and if you stop and think a minute, you know, everybody else gets to do stuff, I have to prepare f- food for the other monks. Why do I have to do this? can lead to grumbling. Well, the instructions are that the kitchen workers should have special food and help so that their service to brothers and guests can be without grumbling. We may, in fact, put one another in situations where grumbling would be the natural response. We need to take care. I think we should face something that may be hard to acknowledge, but it is easy to complain about things, community, congregation, because there is always something wrong. We do not have perfection. There will always be something wrong, and therefore, always something to complain about. The words of John Wesley are true but hard to hear. Are you full of gratitude to him who giveth you life and breath and all things? Not so. You rather spurn his gifts and murmur at him that gave them. How often has your heart said, God did not use you well? How often have you questioned either his wisdom or goodness? Was this well done? What kind of gratitude is this? Indeed, what kind of gratitude? It is ingratitude or misshapen and twisted gratitude. I think there's one other thing, and the application here might be a bit sketchy, but it's what I would call utilitarian gratitude. Stop and think a minute. Has this ever happened to you? Either you get a phone call or you get a letter in the mail. And it starts out something like this. We're just calling you to thank you for your recent generous donation. Do you know what's coming next? Yes, we want more. And their gratitude, you know, the, the gratitude, quotation marks, seems to be purely utilitarian but they want something more. Expressions of gratitude, in fact, do oftentimes, I think, bring a response of more generosity. But we should not be grateful in order that we could somehow get people to give more. I think to use gratitude as a tool is very destructive to a sense of community. It tears down rather than building up the people of God. So that's what weakens our gratitude. What strengthens our gratitude? Gratitude begins by paying attention. Paying attention to the goodness, the beauty, and the grace around us. Christian communities flourish when they regularly tell stories of God's faithfulness and goodness. When they find opportunities to express gratitude and celebrate the gifts we have received. If you ever notice in reading through the Psalms how often... Certain stories were like, well, we've already heard that story. That, that's back in Exodus. No, but they want to remind us. Because in reminding us, then we can once again be grateful to God for what he has done. What can we do to strengthen our gratitude? I'll suggest a couple things. First of all, see each new day as a small resurrection. A 17th century theologian suggested that each new day should be seen as a personal resurrection. 
He writes, Receive therefore every day as a resurrection from death, as a new enjoyment of life. Meet every rising sun with such sentiments of God's goodness as if you had seen it, and all things newly created on your account. And under the scene of so great a blessing, let your joyful heart praise and magnify to good and glorious a creator. Across the street today, our brothers and sisters are celebrating Easter and the Eastern tradition. In fact, every Sunday should be seen as Easter. It is it, Every Sunday recognizes the resurrection of Jesus. But we can, in fact, every day when we wake up, say, God has given me a new day. This is something new. And I should be grateful. If we begin each new day with a, a, an expression of gratitude to God and to those around us, and if we end the day by reflecting on what God and others have done for us, I think this, in fact, would strengthen our gratitude. And in many ways, I think it's simple practices that strengthen gratitude, such as giving thanks at meals, saying grace. Second thing I would suggest is that we make room for gratitude. You may have noticed that I tend to make a big deal about birthdays and anniversaries. My wife has asked me several times before, how many anniversaries do you have? Because I remember my first meeting with Dan and Lonnie and a group of people. That was February 12th, back in 1976. And then I came to this church in July of 1978. So which one is my anniversary? Well, both of them. Because they both are opportunities for me to say thank you to God for his faithfulness. Birthdays are the same way. We should see them as wonderful opportunities for gratitude. In our worship, during our time for prayer, I ask you to speak of things you are thankful for, or things that we would like mentioned by petition. Perhaps we should put a greater emphasis on speaking publicly of things we are thankful for, and things were mentioned today, but that prayer is not only of the things, that, not a matter of asking only, but also of giving thanks to God. There's one more thing. Christine Paul recounts in her book uh, from the novel Gilead, in which Reverend Ames, who does not expect to live to see his young son grow up, writes to his son the following. I'm writing this in part to tell you that if you ever wonder what you've done in your life, and everybody does wonder sooner or later, You have been God's grace to me. A miracle, something more than a miracle. What would it mean to you for you to say to someone or to have someone say to you, you have been God's grace to me? We are to see each other as expressions and embodiments of God's grace. And when we do this, it transforms our life together as a congregation. Not, not simply a collection of individuals, but a family, a congregation, a community of faith. 
In his last meeting with the elders from Ephesus, Paul tells them, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And what he told them was true. But I've said this before, I think I would add that it's easier to give than to receive. Gratitude is an uncomfortable reminder that we need other people and that our lives are dependent on their gifts and generosity. And yet gratitude is a necessary practice to build and sustain a sense of community. That we are the people of God together. That God has given each of us gifts in different ways. That God has brought us together in this congregation. That we are to help one another. And that we are to be grateful. Let's pray together. Indeed, our Father, we have so much to be thankful for. Forgive us for our ingratitude, for our inattention, for our forgetfulness. Help us to see that it is through others that you give to us. And it is through us that you give to others. And that we are to be to each other your grace in their lives. In a culture that does not prize gratitude, may we as your people understand that we are being countercultural. But more than that, we are to be faithful and obedient. We are to recognize that what we have comes from you, from others. We are not independent, we are not on our own, we need one another. I thank you for a generous and thoughtful congregation. May gratitude be a part of who we are as your people. May we recognize and give thanks for what we see in each other. I thank you that we could gather on this day to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.